0: Jesus would oftentimes go to lonely places in order to pray. And this morning we have come to the very loneliest place of all, which is where we find Jesus in our text this morning. I am at a cemetery right now here in town. And as I look out at all of the various graves across this field, I can almost hear the residual sound of ministers reciting Psalm 23. While in the background, you can hear people faintly crying, maybe even on occasion, loudly wailing. It just makes you wonder how many gallons of tears have fallen upon this field in the past hundred years. It's enough tears to fill an ocean. As I look out across this graveyard, I can almost see a crowd gathered around every casket just moments before it was lowered into the ground. I can almost see people in the 1920s, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s going up until our modern day. Headstones that once were brand new and immaculate and now are so disheveled and smeared in dirt that you can hardly even make out a grave. So many people have come to this graveyard, but right now, as I stand here this morning, I'm the only one who's here. I find myself standing in a ghost town that is dead Silence. As I arrived earlier this morning, I was looking at a lot of the headstones. And it just makes me wonder who these people were. What kind of lives did they live? I saw how some were, were born as long ago as the 1860s. Other people were laid to rest here just last week. Some had lived to be over 100 years old. Others didn't even live to be two months old. And as we continue our series of the bombshells of Holy Week, where we left off last week was a lifeless Jesus on a cross. And this morning I would like to continue that in John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, there they laid Jesus. Jesus is dead. His lifeless body is still hung to a Roman cross. Well, the religious leaders saw that Jesus would die the most disgraceful death imaginable. And now if they have their way, they will also see to Jesus being, even in his burial, going to his grave in infamy. While this was a time in which the crucified would lose all of their dignity, Romans would routinely leave a dead body upon a cross in order to rot in the sun. And then once the vultures have devoured the remains, they would throw the body into an unmarked grave. While the religious leaders have just given Jesus a Barabbas death, And now they want to see that he also has a Jezebel funeral. In 2 Kings chapter 9, we might remember the death of this evil queen Jezebel, who scripture refers to. Well, Jehu, who is king of the time, gives very implicit instructions that the body of Jezebel be eaten by dogs. And a part of his instructions that he gives is that the remains of Jezebel were to be so utterly unrecognizable that she was to resemble the manure of the earth. Nobody could even look at her remains and say that was Jezebel because of how unrecognizable she was. What we need to understand is that this is what the scribes and the Pharisees wanted for Jesus in his burial. And this is exactly the kind of burial Jesus would have had if it were not for three unlikely allies. And the very first of these unlikely allies in our text that we read of a moment ago is a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And this is a a shocking thing to discover. Because Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. I mean, this is a high society Jewish aristocrat. And yet even though he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, he was not in agreement with his council members who had demonized Jesus and had made sure that he would be crucified. Joseph of Arimathea is a beautiful man who was waiting for the kingdom of God to arrive. And as he sees Jesus on the course of one day, he takes one look at Jesus, it appears, and it registers, that's it. That is the kingdom of heaven. And so he is a disciple of Jesus, but he is not openly a follower of Jesus. We'll see why in just a moment. And yet what we need to understand, though, is that as he goes to the Roman governor and he asked for the body of Jesus, this was not an easy ask for him to have made. Because Pilate is already exasperated with the Jewish religious leaders. I picture him seeing Joseph approaching him and saying, now what do you people want? I've already crucified Jesus. What more do you want me to do to that innocent man? And yet Joseph replies to him and says, No, 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 no. I want to give Jesus a burial that is proper. Well, most people who, according to their lowly economic means, when they had died, they would just be buried into a very simple grave covered with stones. Stones. And yet Joseph is a very wealthy man, though. He owns this this huge, elaborate grave, or rather a tomb, that you could actually walk inside. It was larger than most small households. And it's got this stone that would be rolled out in front of it in order to keep intruding animals from entering inside. And so Joseph gives Jesus a tomb that and a burial that is fit for a king. And see, this is very significant because if Joseph had not done this, Jesus surely would have gone to an unmarked grave, which would have made Pharisees and Sadducees' accusations a lot more credible in discounting Jesus' resurrection later on. And so Joseph is one of these allies, but, but another that we read of is even more shocking to our ears. Where another ally that is blessing Jesus in his burial is a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as we may remember in John chapter 3, is a Pharisee. This is a teacher of Israel, this was a ruler of the Jews. And like Joseph, Nicodemus is also a believer of Jesus, but not openly. We may remember how in that third chapter of John, we see Nicodemus meeting with Jesus late in the evening. And he's got all kinds of questions for Jesus. He just wants to to hear his sage wisdom and tutelage. And among the things that he walked away from that evening in that conversation with Jesus is that if you want to see the kingdom of, of God and of heaven with your own eyes, You've got to receive a spiritual birth from above. And now yet again, we find Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. This time in Jesus' death. He's got 75 pounds of myrrh and of aloes. This would have been an enormous sum of money that he had spent on these spices for the body of Jesus. Jesus. And so we see the gift of myrrh being given to Jesus in his birth in the manger. And we also now see that gift of myrrh being given to Jesus in his burial. And so it's Nicodemus who anoints the body of Jesus. And and this is such a beautiful act because when you would anoint a dead body, this was a tender act of love and devotion. It would be like if you have a whole bunch of flowers and you place them on a grave here in this graveyard. And yet it just astounds us because of all of the people who would have pulled Jesus off of the cross and buried him, we would have expected Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Jesus. And yet these men are nowhere to be found. And yet of all people, it is a council member and a Pharisee. Two members of the same Sanhedrin who condemned Jesus to the crucifixion that he has just undergone. Who are the ones who beautifully pull him off of the cross, tend to his body, and prepare him for his burial now. Well, as we saw a moment ago, these men are making an astronomical sacrifice in approaching a Roman governor and requesting his body and giving up money and even a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But more than anything, what we need to understand, though, is that they are making an astronomical risk, especially... Notice how Jesus' death is forcing them out of secrecy and out into the open. Much earlier on in the Gospel of John in chapter 9, what we learn is that their very colleagues of the council and of the Sanhedrin have issued this decree that anybody who has confessed Jesus is to be excommunicated from Jewish culture. Families on occasion would even disown a child of theirs, if they confess Jesus as Christ out of fear of being excommunicated. Very soon in the book of Acts, confessing Christ is going to become the highest crime in Israel. And yet, Joseph and Nicodemus are so fiercely mesmerized and under the spell of Jesus' holiness and of his innocence, that they are willing for their whole entire empire of power and fame to come crashing down, if it means loving and honoring Jesus in his burial. And what we especially need to understand is that as soon as he goes to Pontius Pilate, And as soon as all of the other council members receive word that Jesus has gone into Joseph's grave and that Nicodemus had been helping him, these two guys would have been viewed of as absolute traitors in their midst. They would soon be looked upon as the Judas Iscariots of the Jewish Sanhedrin. This would have been like Mickey Mantle and Derek Jeter being seen wearing Red Sox caps. And I just find it so remarkable, and what this says about human nature and sociology, where out of almost 100 men in the Jewish Sanhedrin, we find only two who are stepping forward and saying what is so obvious, but what everybody else is never going to admit, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's something that we see even still to this day in the kingdoms of this world. How the easiest thing in the world is to blend in with all of the corruption of the crowd and to compromise the morality that they claim to be the guardians and gatekeepers of. While it is a very small, miniature, microscopic minority who says and does what is right. And yet I especially want to concentrate on this right now. Notice that Jesus has lived his life in abject poverty for most of his 30 years, but especially these three years of ministry. And now he has just died in abject poverty. And that's because the place where Jesus had been buried, called Golgotha, was a garbage dump in Jerusalem. Jesus was born in an animal trough. And he died in a garbage dump. That's what the religious leaders are expressing loud and clear about Jesus to all these people. He is garbage. And now we are throwing him out with the morning garbage. And so he has lived in abject poverty. But notice now that in his burial and in death, he is being showered with lavish extravagance. When he was born, there was no room in the inn in Bethlehem. Those three years of ministry upon this earth, he had nowhere to lay his head. And yet the one time where there was room for Jesus in the inn, that inn was a mausoleum. Somebody might say Jesus never would have wanted it that way. Somebody might say Jesus would have wanted to have been buried in an unmarked grave. And yet I think about something that happened just a few days earlier in this week. At a dinner party at Bethany. Where a dear friend of Jesus, whose name is Mary who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She is so utterly heartbroken over her sins that she starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears. And it's at that time that she takes out an alabaster vial of the rarest, most expensive perfume in that region. It was worth a year's wages. And she breaks the flask And she pours all of it over Jesus' head and his feet. The whole entire house is suffused with the fragrance. And there is Mary at the feet of Jesus, drying his feet with her hair. Well, Judas Iscariot, he begins to complain about this. He's indignant and he scolds her that that you should have sold this, this fragrance and given the proceeds to the poor course what Judas Iscariot means by all this is that she should have sold it and given the money to the apostles so that he could have stolen it from them. And yet regardless, what the point is, is that Jesus says, leave this woman alone for she has done a beautiful thing to me today. Mary had no idea but what Jesus then says is that for in pouring this ointment on my body. She has prepared me for my burial. And you know, sometimes this world is going to make you feel very stupid and dumb for living your life for Jesus. Sometimes the world is going to say, what a waste of a life spent living for the will of God. And yet here Jesus assures us that it is never a waste when we serve him with all of our hearts. It is a beautiful thing in his eyes. Well, once Joseph and Nicodemus and Mary have prepared Jesus for his burial by anointing him in various different ways, Jesus is then laid to rest. Matthew chapter 1, of verse 23, we may remember an angel appearing to Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. What the angel announced to him is that she shall bear a son, and you shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That is my favorite name for Jesus. You see, because what this means is that no matter what circumstance we are going to find ourselves enveloped by, we are able to say God is with us, that God is with you. We can say God is with me during all of this. See, what this means is that Jesus is with us in all of the happiness and in the laughter of this life, but but especially I believe what this means is that I am with you in the darkness. I am with you when the sorrows of this world infiltrate your soul. I am with you when you feel utterly deserted and alone and forsaken by other people. How I am with you when you feel so ensnared in temptation that you feel as if it's impossible to resist. I'm with you and you can resist it now. Because I have withstood it. And yet more than anything else, what Jesus is saying there is that even in death and now, yes, even in the grave, I am with you. You see, just as you and I one day inevitably are going to have our day where now it's our funeral and we are the ones being lowered down into the earth. Jesus says, I've been there. And my name is Emmanuel, God with us. And as the body of Jesus is then placed inside Joseph's tomb, Well, Sabbath and Passover have now fallen upon Jerusalem. At any other time, this would have been a celebration of celebrations. Everything in Jewish culture led up to it. And yet this Sabbath is very unusual, though. You see, when Jesus was laid to rest on this Sabbath, this was a black Sabbath. There was no happiness to be found in all of Israel. There was just this heavy black curtain of gloom that had fallen over the land, both metaphorically as well as literally. There is a Roman astrologer who was writing about when Jesus went to the cross and and it went completely dark in the daytime. And he speaks about it being so dark that the stars came out and were shining at noontime. Only when Jesus went to the cross and the sun hid its face from the earth. It was darker than the plague of Israel of darkness, where it said that it was so dark that it was a darkness that could be felt. This is a darkness that can be felt. And no matter who the people were, I mean, this is absolute despair. This is, this is depression. Where food has lost its taste. And where the only thing that a person wants to do is to cry their, their heart out until they fall asleep. Somewhere in Jerusalem, the apostles are hiding away in the upper room they are psychotic with confusion and with sadness and with anxiety. They are sleep deprived because even though Jesus had said it would happen, like us, it doesn't always register at first. I mean, this was an absolute bombshell. As they retreat to the upper room on night one, Jesus is dead. On the next day, Jesus is dead. On the day after that, Jesus is still dead and he's buried now. If you're Peter, James, or John, it would have been like, we wait a minute, we saw Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. We were there as it happened. We were there as Jesus brought a young man back to life. It was just the other week where he brought Lazarus out of his grave. But now Jesus is dead and Jesus is buried? We thought that he could do anything. If you're the Apostle Peter, his act of violence in the Garden of Gethsemane with his sword, that was something that very easily could have brought legal consequences upon him. Maybe he is spending those sleepless nights agonizing over, are they going to try to crucify me next? And you know what? Even Jesus' enemies are mentally checked out on this particular Passover. They are making sure that the tomb of Jesus is guarded. They're going to see that nobody goes in and nobody goes out. And yet deep down, what is gnawing away at them like a parasite in their soul is that the Messiah was here. He was the Messiah who our forefathers waited generations for and we killed Him. We executed Him. And we threw Him out with the morning trash. There's an old hymn that is obscure to us. And its words are, O darkest woe, ye tears forthflow. Has earth so sad a wonder? God the Father's only Son now is buried yonder. O sorrow dread, our God is dead. And for multiple sleepless nights, That was the reality for those who loved God. In 2008, we were in a cathedral in Quito, Ecuador. And I'll never forget among the many portrayals of Jesus' life upon the earth, there was one of Jesus, of a lifeless Jesus, lying in a coffin of sorts. And at the time when I was a lot younger, I looked at that and I was offended by it. I said, We serve a risen Savior. How how dare you portray Jesus like that and all of that, you know? But in retrospect, I look back at that now and I, I can see the appropriateness of that. You see, because without the manger there is no cross. And without the cross, there is no empty grave. And without the empty grave, there is no waters of baptism. You see, it is so monumental that Jesus died upon the cross for us. And so perhaps you are mourning some kind of a death in your life right now. Or maybe you are mourning something else today. It might be a relationship that was once so full of life and love, but now is dead and has been buried. And you would give anything to have that friendship again. Or maybe it is a time in your life that you miss so much that that you would give anything to go back to if it were just for a few moments. Or maybe it's just the darkness and the hatred and the all of the animosity that is being embraced and encouraged in the world now. That is making you feel dead inside. And yet regardless of how the world's darkness has come within us this morning, we can take solace in the words of Susanna Heschel, who is the daughter of the great rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, And as she writes of her late father, what she says is this. She says, despair, my father used to remind me, is forbidden. She says, to despair is to deny that God is with us. And that we are given no challenge without the resources of hope. And you see a soul-crushing An adversary as death and the grave are to us. In just a matter of hours, the sun is going to come up. When Jesus died on the cross, and His blood fell down, Satan was defeated. And when the sun comes up in just a few short hours on that morning, the grave will be defeated even for us.